Good morning. Let's talk about walls. Thanks for that response. <laughs> Let's talk about walls. I think our gut reaction when we hear the word wall is rather negative. And we'll get to bad walls shortly. But let's start for a moment with good walls, or ways that walls are good. Metaphorically, we can think about establishing healthy boundaries. But physically, literally, we are so often surrounded by good walls. And of course, these walls here are very special to our community. As the mother of a toddler, I'm really thankful for walls. In fact, in the last two years, I've cursed many open floor plans. <laughs> We're thankful for walls when they provide us with relief from the heat outdoors, when they provide us with privacy and even quiet. Walls do many good things, and this is, of course, not anywhere near an exhaustive list. But I hope it helps you start to imagine, if perhaps you were having trouble, how walls might be a positive image. Of course, the thought of walls more often leads us to negative images, perhaps even those from history. You could be thinking of the Berlin Wall in Germany, or maybe the so-called peace walls that divided Northern Ireland from the Republic of Ireland. Perhaps you know of other walls that have divided communities. One example is the Bur Burwood Wall, which was built around Eight Mile in Detroit, and this was built specifically to separate white and black families. The idea there was protection, but it always is, isn't it? We build physical walls when we're afraid of physical harm, but these walls often symbolize our deeper fears. We're afraid that our way of life might be disrupted, we're afraid that someone who, in our minds, doesn't belong might break in and take or benefit from something that's ours. We're afraid that our spaces will be changed from those who come in from outside. And you know what? Some spaces really are meant to be protected, though I would argue not for our own interests. But walls can be good. And in fact, one of the spaces that is meant to be protected is the place where God dwells. As you might have guessed, our text for today is Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. And it's there that Paul offers his vision for the Ephesian church. And I hope by now that you've heard Dr. Harris's wonderful sermon from last week. She walked us through all of the blessings that God has offered us. Those blessings offered to all of God's children should be in the back of our minds as we hear what Paul has to say to us in chapter 2. Before our passage today, we do need to learn a little bit more about Ephesians. Nerd out a little bit is what I would say to my students. The historical background for this letter is a little mysterious, but many interpreters think that this is a letter that was passed among churches in Ephesus. So it would go from one church and then they would read it and work through it, and then they would pass it on to another church, and so on and so forth. So a modern analogy would be if an influential Christian leader passed through Highwood and gave us a letter, and we would read it and then give it to one of our sister churches, and so on. I love this idea because it represents the unity among churches in a particular physical location, but it doesn't necessarily mean that every church in that physical location agreed on every single thing 
There could be harmony and unity, but there could also be diversity and difference. They, those churches in Ephesus that received this letter, like we with our sister churches, they were, we are united primarily by our faith in Christ. In addition to some of these interesting historical things, what the text of Ephesians implies about the audience is also rather interesting. Throughout this letter, Paul speaks, or he says that he's speaking primarily to the Gentiles. But what does that mean? Uh, the easy answer for this term uh, is always something like the non-Jewish. But we really do need to be a bit more precise. Sometimes this word can mean something like pagans, or perhaps more generously, non-believers. It refers to those outside the communities represented by the church. But to define who is Gentile, we also sort of need to define who is Jewish. And at the time, in the first century, one could be Jewish by birth, but one could also be Jewish by conversion. Someone could become Jewish. And setting aside some of the sincere complexities of this conversation, it's generally safe to say that a person who became Jewish enough to be called Jewish, not just dipping a toe, would follow the law and would, where applicable, be circumcised. So what, this, what matters for us is that when we say that Paul is talking to the Gentiles, he's not talking to non-Christians. And he's not talking about those who were not born Jewish but who became Jewish. In other words, here in Ephesians, Paul is talking about Christians who have never converted to Judaism. He's not necessarily talking about racial or ethnic divisions. He's talking about diversity of backgrounds and more specifically about diversity and how they are currently practicing their faith. As a side note, I want to acknowledge here that Ephesians 2 has become an important text for racial reconciliation. That's completely legitimate. I think this is a completely appropriate use. But I want to show that while Ephesians 2 can do no less than prescribe unity for those of us who are divided artificially by these lines, it can do more. So you might be wondering why, when I can speak of racial reconciliation, would I want to steer away? Why would I not take every opportunity to highlight this issue? And I actually might not convince you that I've made a good choice here by the end of the sermon, but we'll see. When I approach this passage, this is why I made this decision, when I approach this passage on our behalf, thinking specifically of our church, I try to think of how this passage directed to those who have been marginalized, even though they were probably in the majority in terms of numbers. How this could speak to our church that is primarily comprised of the majority culture. Most of us are not the Gentiles in this passage, we're the Jews. But that doesn't mean that Paul doesn't have a meaningful message for us to overhear as we think of what that experience might be like. But still, zooming out a little bit, I think it's important for us to consider how the broader issue Unity with believers who don't practice or believe the very same things, how that matters for us and for our unity with our sister churches in Highwood and throughout the world. So today, we're going to talk about what unites us and the transforming power of the gospel to transcend our particular forms of worship. But first, 
Let's return to Paul's instructions to the Gentiles in the Ephesian church. Paul starts by reminding them that they were brought in, and the language that he uses is powerful. Let me read this for you again. I'm going to deviate a little from the NIV here, but I think you'll be able to follow along if you want to in your bulletins. This is starting in verse 11. Paul says, Remember, formerly you were without the Messiah, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. As a result, you were without hope and without God in the world. Here he depicts their status and social categories. Paul says that they were immigrants and foreigners. And while I want to be really clear that these categories absolutely should carry no shame, they did carry stigma, just as they do today. So by labeling them with these categories, Paul says that they had no status. They had no privileges. They had no benefits. And as a result, he says, they had no hope. But that was before. What do the Gentiles have now? when they receive this letter from Paul. Paul says now things are different, but why? Is it because they've assimilated? Is it because they worked harder? To borrow from my brother Paul, by no means. Absolutely not. In the section before this, Paul has told us that, told us how we can be saved, and I, I gotta tell you, he says explicitly, it's not by works. Paul says that those who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And I love this imagery because it is so simple. Even children at a young age, they, they learn what it means to be close by and what it means to be far away. Even when they can't use words, they tell us when they feel that they're too far away from someone who's safe. Paul tells us that the Gentiles were too far away but he tells us that they did not stay there. He uses this language probably taken from Isaiah. And in one sense, the way he understands this is similar to the way that other Jewish interpreters understood this. But in another sense, it's very different. For other Jewish interpreters at the time, for those outside the covenant, the choice to be circumcised, to enter into the covenant with God is what brought them near. But for Paul, with these Gentiles, this takes place by the blood of Christ. Jesus is our peace, the one who made Jews and Gentiles one. He has made it so that those who adhere to Jewish rituals and those who do not can fellowship together. He destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Most think that Paul has in mind the wall that separated the Jewish people and the Gentiles in the, in the temple in Jerusalem. There was an inner area there where only the Jewish people could go. So this wall kept the Gentiles far away. This is one of the reasons that it's so incredible that Paul says that they have been brought near by the blood of Christ. They have not trespassed. They did not cross a barrier on a whim. They were brought in through this wall. So you might be wondering, was it God's intention to keep the Gentiles far away before Christ? Again, by no means. So in Solomon's temple, we have a formal court of the, Gen or a formal court of the Gentiles doesn't appear to be part of the structure, but the Jewish law still had an implicit barrier for the non-Jewish, who we might call the ritually impure. Prior to the work of Jesus, the Messiah, 
In order to enter the temple, a person had to be ritually pure according to the Jewish law. This included some relatively distinctive things at the time. Behaviors, rituals, practices, avoidances, they served to keep them clean or pure. And in some instances, they kept people healthy, but in others, the laws reflected the wholeness and the holiness of God. When impurity comes into contact with God, impurity generally loses. And this includes impure people who come into contact with God. People who approach God in the wrong way die. So at this point, the purity laws might sound a little archaic. Sometimes they even sound a little silly to our modern ears. And what I'm saying is that the temple walls were restrictive. But they reminded people that the worship space mattered. Scripture tells us that God dwelled in their midst all the time, just as he dwells in ours. But there were holy spaces that required more. All this to say, the walls that preserved the holiness of the temple, especially the most holy place, they were, in my opinion, good. But that one wall in the Jerusalem temple in particular, it came to represent division within the people of God. The Jewish people were afraid that their way of life might be diminished. They saw that the Gentiles were becoming leaders in the church. They were beginning to outnumber them, and they were afraid. We see this in Romans as well. That wall was intended as a barrier to preserve the holiest places, but instead it was used to create a hierarchy. This, of course, was not what God intended. But Paul tells us in verse 14 that Jesus Christ, our peace, broke down that wall, and he unified the two groups. And he didn't erase their distinctions when he did this, but he made the different ways that they had come to faith irrelevant. In Christ, they were of equal status now. But this isn't just a declaration. They aren't simply pronounced equal. More than that, the two are brought together to comprise a new humanity. They're changed. And again, they're not made to be all the same, in the same way that the old humanity represented people from every tribe, people, nation, and tongue. This new humanity does as well. It is the same in its representation of every people under the sun. We see this clearly represented at Pentecost. This new humanity is restored to life out of death, death that would otherwise be ours. Jesus reconciles the two groups to God through the cross, and it's also through the cross that he puts to death their hostility. He says this in verse 16, and this is the same word, hostility, that's used in verse 14 to describe the dividing wall. I think that Paul likely means that this dividing wall causes the hostility between the group, two groups, but most importantly, here he says that the cross kills it. Now that the wall is torn down, they all have access to God through the Spirit. In the final verses of this section, verses 19 to 22, Paul finally returns to the idea of status where he began. He said these believers were once immigrants and foreigners. So what are they now that they've been brought near? Now, they're fellow citizens. They're granted those rights and benefits that wouldn't have been theirs. But there's more. They're also brought into the household of God. 
And while households were rather expansive at this time, they could include um, slaves, others within the extended family, I, I think given Paul's language elsewhere, that this is a picture of adoption. They don't just gain the rights given to citizens, they've been brought into the household of the king. That is a tremendous blessing. And then in verse 20, Paul introduces something of a play on words. He moves from the idea of a household, the people, to the idea of a building, a house, the structure. It's something of a pun. I don't know if it technically applies, but something like a pun, because these two Greek words are related, just like they are in English. So now, let's talk about walls. Good walls. As with any good construction project, Paul begins with the foundation. For this building, the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. I imagine this is because the prophets testified to who the Messiah would be. And the apostles testified to the specific words and works of Jesus of Nazareth. Both are important for the integrity of this building. But the most important piece of this building is the cornerstone. The stone was a piece of the foundation that was used to ensure that the walls would be built straight and plumb. The cornerstone ensures that all is right in the construction. In him or through him, the cornerstone, the whole building is joined together into a temple of the Lord. And we, Paul tells us, are being built, joined together into a holy dwelling of God also. We are the stones dependent upon the cornerstone to ensure that the building will stand. This image is similar, I think, to Paul's image elsewhere of the body. Each piece is necessary, and the whole is far more important than any single part. Apart from the foundation and the precious cornerstone, the other parts of the building are no more or less important. They serve as one. But here in Ephesians, the image is slightly different. This isn't about who's more or less important. It's not about the gifts, you know, whose gifts are best, how they come together in that way. Instead, it's a picture of everyone coming together despite their disagreements, their divisions over their understanding of the Jewish law, their differences in interpretation. They aren't just tolerating each other. This is an image of cooperation, of being united by mortar for a common cause becoming the holy dwelling place of God together. Sisters, brothers, we are one building together. We cannot let the path of our faith journeys, our preferences, our secondary issues, our politics divide us. Jesus Christ destroys the barriers that we build. But we might not see it that way. We might not see that reality. When I look around at my various spaces, I see division. In fact, I feel it. And I, I might ask, I have asked, why, Jesus, have you not broken down that barrier or that barrier? And so on. But he has. Christ has united us, but we have erected or imagined false barriers. When I was younger, I had a friend who had a dog, and they chose to put a shock collar around the dog. The dog would be zapped any time it kind of crossed the threshold of the property. And at some point, the collar technically stopped working. The dog, uh, but the dog didn't know. So the dog would go to the edge of the property and stop. 
I imagine that I could have stood just beyond that barrier and I could have called to the dog over and over and he never would have come. For us, the situation is a bit different. We see a barrier that we've been told by others is important, but it was never really a barrier. You are one with one another and with each of our sisters and our brothers at the churches in Highwood and with each of our sisters and brothers at the churches around the country, around the state, and around the world. As it turns out, we are the good walls. So we can spend our energy fortifying fake walls, boxing people out. But I do wonder if at some point we might realize that in reality we haven't boxed out others, that we've actually boxed out ourselves. So to close, let me borrow from another liturgy. What God has brought together, which is every, each and every person in Christ, what God has brought together, let no person tear asunder. Amen.